Hello, listeners, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 50 of Bad Voltage. As always, I am joined by Jono, Edward James Bacon III. But in place of Stuart Ian Langridge today, we have a very special guest, and that guest is uh, Erica Brescia. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Erica, she is a VC at Redpoint. Do you want to introduce yourself, Erica? Sure. Yes. I uh, recently moved to the dark side, as some people say, back in January. Um, I invest primarily in, you know, uh, DevOps, infrastructure, security, and open source companies at the seed and series A. Um, prior to moving into venture, I was the chief operating officer for GitHub for a few years. And before that, uh, I founded a company called Bitnami that did app packaging and deployment. We like to think we were doing DevOps before DevOps was a thing. And I also, I suppose it must be noted, am married to one John o. Edward James Bacon the third, and I'm also pretty. <laughs> I'm very unhappy about all of this. This is not going to end well for me. I'm pretty in sure any it's going to end less well for me than it is for you. I'm I'm fairly certain I'm going to regret agreeing to do this after all these years avoiding Jono's podcast. Just happy to be along for the ride here, and I'm a little surprised that you took him up on this offer. So, uh, well, welcome to the show. Let's just all be thankful that language is not here. Okay. <laughs> that's the, that's the real message in all of this. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm happy that we're not going to be talking about any VC shit. So, uh, what should we get started with, Jeremy? <laughs> I, I think, I think Eric was going to introduce this one. <laughs> oh, what should we get started with, Erica? We're going to talk about some VC shit. Um, <laughs> all right. I can't, I think it's in my contract or something. Like, I can't go anywhere and not talk about investing these days. Uh oh, do, do you have a rider yeah. for this episode? Uh, <laughs> and if so, have we followed it? I did not get my requested green M&Ms. I'm very disappointed. I'm going to be taking this up with management later. Um, but today, <laughs> we are going to talk about uh, Adam Newman, uh, the founder of WeWork, has raised $350 million from Andreessen Horowitz for a company called Flow in the real estate space. Um, some of you have may have seen this unbelievably colorful documentary on WeWork, We Crash. I actually had to stop watching it. It was so painful to watch. Um, but obviously... <laughs> <laughs> Newman lost billions and billions of dollars and uh, is seen by many as having created a very toxic uh, culture and managing a business very irresponsibly. And he was rewarded with another $350 million. So thought that might be yeah. fun to talk about. I have so many, so many opinions here. <laughs> yeah, there's so much. There is so much in this. So I was doing a little bit of, of, of digging into this, a, a rare amount of research for bad voltage. And uh, so, yeah, this is 350 million from Andreessen Horowitz. And um, nobody seems to know what flow really is. It's something to do with housing. Um, I went and read the the uh, blog post that Andreessen Horowitz put up about it. And it didn't really say anything other than that we're in a housing crisis and we need to deal with it. And um, and I, I pulled a quote from this because I, I thought this was interesting for a couple of reasons. So this is from um, Mark Andreessen. Adam is a visionary leader who revolutionized the second largest asset class in the world, commercial real estate, by bringing community and brand to an industry in which neither existed before. Adam and the story of WeWork have been exhaustively chronicled, analyzed, and fictionalized. And this is a bit I like, sometimes accurately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did enjoy that bit. But yeah. this next bit really got me. For all the energy put into covering the story, it's often underappreciated that only one person has fundamentally redesigned the office experience and led a paradigm-changing global company in the process, Adam Neumann. 
What bugs me about that is only one person. This is one of the things that irritates me about these kinds of statements is lots of people made WeWork successful. I mean, I appreciate that there's been a lot of criticism towards Adam Neumann. I don't really want to get into it because I don't know most of the story. But to suggest that only one person was responsible for that just is bullshit. Um, lots of people made WeWork happen. They did. I, I would also argue that co-working spaces were a thing before we work. I get that having one that was larger that companies could negotiate across cities and things was a, a little bit of a new yeah. model. A $50 billion valuation was always asinine. And he incinerated that. Their, what's their valuation today? Like 3% or three, $3 billion. Right. So actually not far off of 3%. Um, so it's not only that he, he does not have a great history there as far as management style and, and toxic workplace, everything. They just gave him $70 million two months ago for Flow Carbon, which already paused operations. So how you could go through $70 million and not make it two months, mind-blowing, and then they give them more money? <laughs> I, I legitimately don't get it. But here's, since you're going to quote, I'll, I'll pull out a quote from the New York Times, because I think this gives a, a good amount of context for why this is not a great VC investment. Look what you're doing, Erica. You're making us do research. <laughs> this is this is very unusual. Bad Voltage List is like, what's going on? <laughs> Uh, so Mr. Newman, who has purchased more than 3,000 apartments in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Atlanta, and Nashville, aims to rethink the rental housing market by creating a branded product with consistent service and community features. Flow will own and operate the properties Mr. Newman had bought and also offer its services to new developments and other third parties. Exact details of the business plan could not be learned. In the case of Flow, the business is effectively a service that landlords can team up with for their properties, somewhat similar to the way an owner of a hotel might contract with a branded hotel chain to operate the property. So, so what they did here is built a property management company, which is not exactly a new thing and not the type of home run exit that VCs are, are typically looking for. There's a lot to unpack here. So I want to go back to something Jono said, because he always says this, and I sort of disagree, which is like, you can't look at one person as for the success or failure of a company. I do completely agree with you there. But at the same time, it takes the one person or the the few people to start something. And they're the ones who hire and fire everybody else, right? This is why executives, C-level executives are held to high standards or should be, because they are ultimately responsible. They're responsible for raising the money. They're responsible for choosing who's on the board. Like all those decisions actually really impact the long-term trajectory of the company. Like how much do you raise? Should you raise it a $50 billion valuation or is that a terrible idea, right? Like as long as the CEO or the founding team controls the board, they do control the company. And so I do think it's fair to put the overwhelming responsibility on one person, which is also why he shouldn't have gotten all the payouts that he got <laughs> along the way at WeWork, right. I think. so. But also, Mark Andreessen didn't say he led the charge towards this revolution in office space. He said only one person is has uh, fundamentally redesigned the office experience. And I just think that's untrue. I agree with you, Erica, that at the end of the day, the leader of a company, they are – there's so much push there and, 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 and their grit and determination is super important. But to suggest that I just thought that was really disrespectful towards WeWork employees. Like many people work their ass on the line at work, work their ass off to make WeWork a success. And many WeWork people would have been incredibly disappointed by the way everything ended 
for all the reasons, you know, people have discussed. So, but I, I think, honestly, I think we're both right. I think we're both fair, right. Fair choice of wording. Like, his wording was a poor choice. I, I agree yeah. with you there. And I'm I sure just that's wanted to meant. make that point. And now I have it on record, so I can just pull this this handy podcast up later. <laughs> this Hang on. When you say on record, do you mean like, do you, normally when you're right about things in our marriage, uh, it's not recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So this is wonderful. I'm not sure um, if there's enough disk space for this, by the way. Uh, <laughs> anyway, on to the more uh, interesting topic of Adam Newman and 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 WeWork. Actually, I would say, I mean, I think WeWork was pretty revolutionary, and it wasn't just this small like, you know, it, we have multiple properties that companies can book. I think that was part of it, but the way they thought about the experience and the way they at least thought about building the community around WeWork and with their users and trying to bring in speakers and connect people. And like, there was kind of like a culture. I worked out of WeWorks on several occasions and we actually had Bitnami in a WeWork for a little while while our office was getting built out. And it was, it was not just like, I, I think what existed before WeWork, the previous office sharing spaces. And I do think that WeWork, because of its PR and everything else to like change the way companies thought of this, right? Like we closed an office at GitHub. We closed our Colorado office and we're moving into a co-working space. And we probably wouldn't have done that if, you know, like WeWork hadn't like kind of normalized that. Um, I, I don't know yeah. that we would have just seen it as an option. And then the, the fact to Jeremy's point that you could go in, I've been in WeWorks in China and stuff, right? Working out of those. And you can go and have a standardized experience in this like increasingly uh, globalized, you know, world that we live in. Um, so I, I think what he did was notable. And like to, to put the counter argument in place, like I get Adam, Adam Newman is a pretty unique character and to pull off something like that is impressive. And a lot of things he did were, were impressive. I still wouldn't have funded his business to be clear. Uh, first and foremost, cause I have a like no assholes policy in my investment thesis. And uh, I don't think it's I could work policy. with him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh, in business and in life. Um, Multiple VCs <laughs> are, are on the record saying he is the best per pitch they've ever seen. And not we work specifically just him like that's his one superpower is yeah. is sales and specifically pitching VCs, which clearly, if you can get these kind of valuations on these not great ideas, it's that part I guess is sad but impressive. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, and again, like a lot of this is informed by the documentary and stuff. Um, but he was a very charismatic leader, right? And the the talks that I've seen of him and the interviews and everything, like he's convincing. I I, I get it. Um, I think what's interesting about flow. So a, a few things. I think one of them is he bought this real estate himself. Like this is not flows. He bought a billion dollars worth of real estate and now he set up a company that's going to be operating that real estate that's paying him with VC it, dollars. It's the same shady stuff that he did at WeWork. I, it feels super shady to me, but what I think is really important, and there is a, a thread from this guy. Maybe you can put it in the, the show notes. I think his name is pronounced Safi, S-A-F-I. Um, but he went through and like outlined how this is all coming together. And it's not just about the properties and the property management, though, you know, a lot of properties are not well run. And I can see especially people that are 
like either more nomadic or like, you know, we see Xennials like move around a lot more frequently than people of our distinguished generation. Did you say did you say Xennials? <laughs> yeah, I think that's what they're called now. I don't know. What the young so you, the you young think folks. they will flow through the residential housing market by going to different flow units year over year? That that's oh the investment flow. thesis. That was unac- that was unacceptable. I think I I could see it being the case. I mean, people are like Redpoint invested. I wasn't involved in this one, but I, I think it's an interesting concept. They invested in a company called Wander that's like building out these rental properties, but they're all like absolutely stunningly beautiful. They all have like really um, high end Wi Fi. They all have a million outlets. Like they're exactly what you would want if you're either a group from a company or if you're just somebody who's moving around and wants to go work from Tahoe for a week or whatever. So it's not Airbnb funded by VCs. It's Airbnb for VCs. (laughs) Basically. Something like that. I mean, it's more targeted towards companies than VCs, but fair. Touche. Yeah, they even like come with a Tesla, I guess. So you have a car there ready for you to drive around and stuff. Um, there's an interesting like product placement angle for that. But the point of the, the, the point of the investment thesis was really that, you know, as people move more and more to remote work, there are a lot of people that are moving around more frequently, right? And there's even countries like Italy and, and Spain and stuff that have whole like government groups, you know, that are trying to attract remote workers to like stay there for three months working and they're like literally running like PR campaigns to lure people to just come and work in their towns for a certain amount of time. And so I think that was the thesis behind that. And my point is for something like Flow, if you if they build a way to move your lease around so you can live for three months of the year in Miami and three months of the year in San Francisco and three months of the year in New York and you're in your 20s and you know that you're going to get the same quality in every place. Like, I could actually see that being really interesting. But they also have a bunch of related investments um, related to Flow that aren't, I think, part of Flow. Like, I think Adam is invested in Valentech, which is this full-service mortgage platform to help people buy houses. Hello Alfred, which is a property management startup. There is a firm called Dorsey Home. This is all in that Twitter thread, by the way, um, that um, is like bidding on houses for real estate agents. And so when you combine all of these things, like it feels like he's trying to like completely overhaul how housing works, period. Like how you buy real estate, how you sell real estate, how you lease real estate, and what your expectations can be. Like, I actually think it's a really freaking cool idea. I just don't know that I want Adam Newman running it. But like, again, I don't know him and I'm poorly informed by a very biased documentary. Yeah. But even given the model, I don't see the VC exit happening here. Well, I mean, in this case, there could be multiple exits, right? Because you could have Hello Alfred exit, the property management company, like all these different things that are tied together exit over time. But also, I do think, I mean, commercial real estate or like residential real estate is still a huge market and not going away. And so I think there's an exit in terms of long term. He exits the billion dollars in properties he built, perhaps. And I could oh, see I'm a sure there's an exit like for this. him at the end of the road. <laughs> I meant like the VC getting the multiple they want out of this seems, I hate to say impossible, but pretty unlikely. 
I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to research the valuations of like property management firms though. Like if you're operating a massive real estate portfolio across the company, I would think that there's an over over a billion dollar exit. Now, is there a 10 or 20 or 30 billion dollar exit in there, which is what I would be looking for to invest? I don't know. Um, but when people put in the, the like the bigger you check the check you write, oftentimes like the lower the multiple you're looking for in BC, right? It's firms like Andreessen that have billions and billions and billions of dollars to put to work. They can afford to invest in something at a billion dollar valuation. They get a five X on that. It's still a really good outcome for them. Whereas if you're writing like a $20 million check out of a $650 million fund, which would be like the case with my investments, you know, I'm looking for like, can this 30X or something like that? Because we have a much smaller um, fund that needs to be deployed. So we're looking for higher multiples. Also, I'm shocked that this is the largest check that Andreessen Hor- Horowitz has ever written, which you look at, yeah. like, I get Facebook was a long time ago, but Stripe and Airbnb and Okta, Instacart, Slack, like, you look at all the companies they've invested in, the fact that this is their largest check is a little I, bit mind-blowing. Was, I, I was going to say the same thing. I think I think that's what people have, have found so intriguing about this story is one is he got invested in and two he didn't just get invested in he got massively invested in and i think it just it's a broken i I can understand being um, another founder another entrepreneur being just pretty frustrated at this situation and i think we all know that there's always two sides of a story and uh, almost certainly everything that's been communicated online about him is only part of the truth. Like, yeah. you, like there's always a whole bunch of truth that nobody ever talks about that in many cases v- vindicates an individual and what they're accused of online. You know, I mean, I'm not talking about sexual harassment, things like that, of course, but I'm talking about the way people are presented in, in other situations. Um, so I'm sure that he's probably been somewhat unfairly represented publicly, but still to have that level of investment in in the start of given what's happened in this company, given what's happened, I just, I, it's curious to me. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, to Jeremy's point, I did some very comprehensive research in the last 30 seconds and the biggest property management firm has 12,000 employees, 30 offices worldwide and a reported $26 billion under management. So like, I think you can build a pretty big company in yeah. in this space. And if they like if they have the revenue to support that many employees, they're probably doing pretty well. I mean, 12,000 employees is I mean, that's more than a billion dollar company <laughs> unless they're losing money, but I don't know how they'd be doing that at maybe debt or something. Yeah. Yeah. I doubt they're getting tech margins on that though is the thing. Oh, I agree with you. But again, like one of the things that we're seeing is these like mega funds, right? There's like KOTU and there was Tiger and then they got destroyed and Index and Andreessen is they have so much freaking capital to put to work. Like if you have billions and billions and billions of dollars to invest, there's only so many places you can deploy that capital into, right? So yeah, you're not going to get the same VC multiple. But again, like if they can turn $350 million into, I don't know, uh, three and a half billion, if they could get a 10 X on that, which like maybe is, I mean, tough, but not completely out of the realm of reason, like feels like a reasonable bet. Again, like I would just have a hard time wanting to go into to doing business with someone like that. Personally, it was a hot VC topic though. There was a lot of debate. Like, do you fund the asshole or not? 
again, sorry. I'm sure Adam Newman is, or however you say his last name, is tuning into this too. I'm sorry. I keep repeating that. I actually don't know. Maybe, maybe you're not. He's a regular listener. Yeah, I'm Definitely, sure. Yeah. I'm, it's at the top of his list of podcasts, right? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Yeah, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, we'll see what happens. So um, what's next? What do you want to talk about, Jeremy? Why don't we go to something a little bit lighter? So did you see that the AI, someone entered an AI-generated uh, art into an art contest at a state fair and won? The, the title of the article from Ars Technica is AI Win State Fair Art Contest Annoys Humans. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that is a great which, title. Kudos. Uh, a synthetic media artist named Jason Allen entered AI-generated artwork into the Colorado State Fair Fine Arts Competition and announced last week that he won first place in the digital arts category. Um, so he used MidJourney, which is a commercial energy, uh, image synthetics model available through a Discord server uh, to create a series of images. And then he iterated on them a little bit and submitted the one that he likes. The one that he ended up submitting actually looks like a, a quite nice picture. Um, it does. Yeah, one, he didn't tell the judges that it was AI generated, which I think is where the mm. a little bit of the annoyance came in. But the one thing that dawned on me, and I did a little research, and it's funny, people thought like this about photographs in like the mid 1800s because they were like, that's not art. I have to do all this work and draw and paint mm-hmm, or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and you just snap a thing and it's exact replica. So there is a quote in a 1901 issue of Brush and Pencil. Um, that is from Henrietta Klopath that says, The fear has sometimes been expressed that photography would in time entirely supersede the art of painting. Some people seem to think that when the process of taking photographic in colors has been perfected and made common, the painter will have nothing more to do. So it's, it's funny how things come full circle in ways that you wouldn't expect. It is. I also want to know, what was the subscriber base to Brush and Pencil magazine is what I want to know. <laughs> I know. Oh, my That's gosh. So, so. I assume really everything <laughs> back in the day was a nickel. Yeah. And the, yeah. Uh, the, the, they didn't have Twitter and Reddit, I guess. So you had to do something with your time. Wow, I, you can buy like you can buy volumes of brush and pencil on Amazon. I just found it. I can think, you get the uh, 1901 I, issue with this quote? Because if so, I'm buying it. <laughs> We, I, I think we might we might be able to get that. We do not need to own that, Jono. No. <laughs> if the entire anthology of brush and pencil should have <laughs> <laughs> You will be in trouble. I yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think there will always be appreciation for human created things. Like I don't think that'll go away. I think it'll just become another form of art. I think maybe people yeah. will do more to prove that they've done it, right? Like maybe more painters will actually film the painting and you'll get like a film of them painting the thing or something. Like that's what I would do, right? I'm sure there's some kind of web three thing in here too. <laughs> like you can yeah. no. make the video it, of the it, painting it, that's an NFT. I don't I'm It kidding. does raise this really interesting broader question around, um, I never really thought about this until you mentioned that, Eric, around how um, if you're going to have competitions in the future around art, for example, is how you prove that you didn't use computers to generate it, right? Um, you know, we've had this conversation previously on Bad Voltage about deep fakes, about, you know, how are you going to be able to prove that something is a deep fake and it's not um, the actual person? Um, and that almost to me seems like there has got to be a solution out there for this is the authenticity of the original creation, which, you know, we've always been able to figure this stuff out generally with our eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but now we're not able to do that increasingly. I mean, there's this 
I, the, another thing I read this week is apparently, because of course, porn is the innovator in everything in tech, mm-hmm. is now AI is generating porn. Um, and it's more like naked pictures, but huh. whole industries are going to be shaken up by by all of this. So, I think our brains will get better at discerning it. If, if like people that when Jurassic Park came out, people thought it was amazing and looked so realistically. And now, if you look at the movie, it looks like someone moving a plastic toy around. <laughs> so, as it becomes more common, I think brains do adjust. What I think is interesting about it now that I'm thinking about it, and I I didn't think about it when I read the article, is it's almost decoupling creative talent from creative thought. So, if someone has a creative mind but is terrible at actually painting, before they had no outlet really, where now they do, which is a, it's an interesting decoupling. That's a great point. Uh, they did have an outlet. Their outlet was punk rock. I mean, I, uh, hiring, <laughs> hiring a master painter, I guess, or, or punk rock. I, I am neither talented with art nor uh, creative. So unfortunately, it doesn't help people like me still. But yeah, I think, you know, art for people that are really into it is very much about the story of the collector. I think it's the same could be said for like wine and some other things too, right? Like you want to know yeah. the story of the artist or the story of the vineyard and the winemaker, whatever. And like, you feel this connect. I mean, at least if you're going to buy anything of, of significant value, as opposed to like something you buy out of, I don't know, bed, bath, and be out wherever people buy art. Um, you can tell I'm a real art lover. Um, ben, did you say Bed Bath and Beyond? <laughs> That's the first thing that came I'm to mind. Known for <laughs> per- being purveyors of fine art, I believe. <laughs> I actually haven't That's been what... in a Bed Bath and Beyond in like 15 years That's either. Where I... I don't That's know where, where I buy all from. my Matisse's. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, whatever. There's all these websites and art.com. There you go. Um, yeah, but I think people, I think people want to feel a connection. And so, you know, as with John and I have been talking about this a lot, like bringing creators closer to their fans or their audience is just a trend that we're seeing across everything. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's more and more of that in the art world, because that's the way that artists will be able to differentiate themselves for from AI generated stuff. And for people that don't really care, that aren't really fans and just want something pretty on their wall, like they're already going to art.com. And I don't think they really give a crap who created it or where it came from anyway, or if a thousand other people have the same (laughs) photograph on their wall. Yep. But this this issue of like tech influencing art is just it's been going in the music world. There's been this um, uh, a lot of controversy around bands who use backing tapes. So when they go on stage and they play a live show, especially bands that have got like orchestral arrangements and things like that, that they they play the orchestra behind them because they can't afford to take an orchestra on tour with them. And some musicians are absolute purists where they say this is inappropriate and and whatever else. So. It is going to be interesting seeing how all this shakes out with, with with the art world. But I I wonder whether one element of making art is going to be able, whether it will be more common where you'll be able to actually see how the artist made it. Because if the, if we've got a piece of art hanging on the wall and it's a one off, it would actually be quite cool having a video watching the artist, even if it's just some pictures of the artist painting it behind the picture. Like in many cases, artists will write a little note and they'll put it up behind the picture. I wonder if that will become more and more of a thing. So. Or if people even have like small devices that just are next to the art that are playing the video of people making it too. Like just as our houses and stuff become more digitized, like I actually would be more interested in buying art if I had that, I think. Yeah. Even if it wasn't like the whole, it could either be like a sped version or maybe it's just like in cuts of the different like layers of a painting or something like that. 
You know, yeah. I, I would be much more interested because I really appreciate the creative process. But since I don't paint, I don't really understand what goes into making some super cool yeah. painting or something. Yeah. Yeah. Neither do I. People are probably doing that, though, and we probably just don't know about it. Yeah. There's a million Patreons, probably. It feels like that has probably. to be a thing. Yeah. It feels like it has to be. So I have uh, something to talk about, which is we've got some new gadgets coming out. So today is, as we record this, is the Apple uh, event where they're going to be talking about the um, uh, the iPhone 14. Um, and uh, also there's going to be the Google event, which is happening in October, I think it is. But the two things that I thought were interesting about this were about watches. So apparently, I didn't know this until I was researching this this morning, Apple are going to be bringing out a new Apple Watch. It's called the Apple Pro Watch um, that they're going to be announcing today. And then Google are apparently going to be bringing out a, their, their first Google Pixel Watch, which is going to be announced in October. So Eric and I are both iPhone users. Jeremy, you're a Pixel user still, right? I am. Um, can we can we so, pause on this that it took me 10 years to switch over, to get you to switch over to... Apple devices, and then you were like, oh my god, Erica, you were right. (laughs) Ten freaking years of bollocking me about using an iPhone, and then he gets one, and he's like, oh my god, this is so great, I'm never going back. And then I got him a watch for Christmas, and you'd had so many android watches that are just like sitting around i don't know why people were gifting you all these android watches but you had like three or four of them (laughs) and uh, who knows that was poor poor choices on your part people who gifted them those watches but yes then the apple watch now you wear every who gave you stuff day (laughs) yeah uh, as you can probably tell listeners a thick layer of smug uh, (laughs) appeared above the house uh, (laughs) as this was uh, as this was going on if, if again, if language was here, he would be just just getting uh, redder and redder explode. by the moment. So I will say that the Pixel is quite superior to the iPhone, in my opinion. The all Android watches, and I think I've owned most of them, are terrible. Right. I wonder like why that is. Why is that? They're just they are terrible. I mean, I don't and, know. And you had the the Moto. So the Moto the running Moto? watch actually wasn't. The worst for an Android watch, it was good. It wasn't quite as good as a Garmin, but that's a pretty high for bar. For an Android watch, it was <laughs> but good. It could tell the it was time. A, a reasonable <laughs> watch. The, the Moto 2 was probably the best one I've had, and it wasn't terrible, I guess, uh, or as bad as the rest of them. But as someone who really likes watches, I, I just can't get into smartwatches. I don't know why. Yeah, how was that Tizen app store? I actually um, <laughs> remember you reviewed a watch. I This is proof that I listened to you guys. You reviewed I, the, a watch the on this show, and the, I listened I the to that episode. And the uh, the customer service debacle that ensued. Um, <laughs> yes. I remember that. So apparently the, the Apple Pro Watch is going to have a larger case. Apparently it's going to have a better battery. And a, they're going to have some kind of new low power mode where they say that the battery might even last for multiple days uh, with, with a single charge. That would be and nice. And apparently it's going to do body temperature measurements where it won't measure it all the time, but it will notify you when, you're att- when your temperature is elevated, which... It's probably arguably the most important element of that. I'm curious how that differentiates from you being out in the sun uh, <laughs> or whatever. The Google Pixel Watch um, is – I didn't see the price of the Apple Pro Watch, but I'm guessing it's going to be pretty expensive. The Pixel apparently is going to be about 400 bucks. It's going to have fitne- Fitbit fitness tracking built into it. Look at all this delicious research you're all enjoying, people, <laughs> listeners. Um, which is, you know, the fact that finally now <laughs> – the Fitbit Google thing is actually reaching some kind of conclusion yeah. is interesting. 
it's it's going to rock the world with USB-C. Apparently, it's going to have a pretty small battery on it, and it'll do heart rate, blood oxygen, and ECG. So it sounds like it's going to – the Pixel Watch is kind of going to be almost like a budget Apple Watch. The in pictures some are weird as well, if you've seen them. I haven't seen a they picture. Are. I'm going to have to look at it. <clears throat> yeah. I, the most exciting thing in all of that is USB-C because it's really annoying to have a separate charger. The rest of it is literally just – basically catching up with the apple watch other than the fitbit integration which like obviously one would hope that they would do that yeah but that i i and with the fitbit side of things fitbit was i mean erica and i have had we had fitbit bands for years because fitbit were definitely top of the game when it comes to it but i would say now apple health is far superior to Fitbit, in my personal opinion. I don't know about the Google. I'm guessing Google's health stuff is just Fitbit, right? Um, so, so I'd be curious from our listeners if 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 you're going to buy either a Pro Watch or if you're going to buy a Pixel Watch. I'm guessing most people are going to be interested in the Pixel Watch. Um, but yeah, let us know in the forum what you think about that. Um, are either you going to buy one of these two? Do you think, based upon what you're hearing? I mean, the, the, I think the I'll question is: Are you seven? Yeah, you will. I mean, I have a six. <laughs> as long as it's yeah. not like something odd about it. Hopefully, they make it a little bit smaller. That's one thing. The six is an odd size. Is it? Is, is it kind of like one of those mid-size phones between a massive and a little one? It is, but it's also elongated a little bit compared to most phones. So it's just a weird layout. Oh, that's it's odd. John and I were so. talking about this though, like with iPhones, like, I don't feel like I need to buy every new iPhone. I used to, especially, like, way back in the day when I used to use Android 2. Like, I wanted every new phone because it seemed like the incremental changes were so valuable. And now it's like, eh, I don't really care. Like, unless it – the only things that would change my mind on the phone are really, like, battery life or if somehow the camera gets even better or something um because those are two things that could actually differentiate it otherwise it's so much i would say if you're into pixels you need to buy every three yeah i mean that's about the cadence this is on this show i have been accused of being a vapid breathless apple fanboy and um (laughs) this is not gonna help my course they're not wrong (laughs) you're a total convert but to Erica's point, one of the things I've noticed, that we were chatting about this the other day, is um, I, I bought every single Pixel year after year that it, when it came out because it always introduced such new things that I was excited about it. And, no, and also, by the end of that first year, it was starting to get a bit creaky. I'm still on an Apple, uh, on an iWatch, uh, iPhone um, 12. So, you know, it's a couple of years old now. And this thing is working it it feels as new as it's ever been and the battery is as great as it's ever been and the apple watch is the only watch that as erica said that i've consistently worn that none of the android watches worked out for me and i wanted them to work out for me and also my mac i just don't feel like i need to upgrade computers as often as well so i don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing for apple or whether this is some genius play that google's working on and lenovo is the fact that you want more of the new stuff I do feel like I mean, the innovation is happening on the Pixel side a little bit more. Like the last couple of iPhones have just not been very exciting. Yeah, but like um, how – I mean, I'm sure there are more things for them to do. I just don't necessarily know what they are. Like some of this yeah. – I mean, going back to the watch thing, like the watch is a total catch-up game. So obviously there should be big improvements because they're so far behind. Yeah. With like yeah, the exactly. phones and the computers and stuff, it's like – 
I mean, I guess the touch bar, which I know some people hate and some people love, I happen to like it. But like, I there are some AM. things that changed. But otherwise, like, I don't know how much like major step change improvements. Are, and if you're are really possible. going for innovation on the phone, you're going to get a Soli every once in a while, where where you launch it in one <laughs> phone and just it's not. The adoption is basically zero, and you never hear the word Soli ever again. <laughs> I don't even know what Soli is, so that that's case in point, I guess. One of the Pixels so had like I- an infrared thing where you could motion over the phone, and it would notice uh, the motion. Oh. So you, the gesture, you didn't have to touch the phone. You could just be phone adjacent, and it was in one device ever. <laughs> that I was, I was excited about those motorized cameras that came out the top of the phone. Oh, my um, God. That sounds uh, like a terrible idea. But it's it's so stupid in retrospect. I think the things that... I think the things that really change the game now, like one of the reasons I do want to get the next watch most likely is because I have an older Apple watch and it doesn't have the blood oxygen monitoring. And with COVID, I was like, holy cow. I And I have a, a guy that I work with who used Whoop a ton and his friends all used Whoop. And he figured out that he had COVID before he tested positive because of the respiratory rate on his Whoop device. And oh, well. so I think yeah. like the health, Feature. I mean, people are just becoming more engaged and proactive around their health in general, I think, or at least a, a segment of the population, a large percentage of which are buying these smart devices, right, Yeah, are more interested in their health. And I think, like, I want the EKG, I want the blood oxygen thing. As soon as somebody can get me some device that I wear on my wrist that helps with, like, glucose levels so you don't have to like pop those things in your arm or anything that has to do with fitness and metabolism like that's the next killer feature for me yeah um and like i, a, I think a lot as well blood pressure like if they, the, when they can start tracking blood pressure on, on smart watches that will be a game changer i think for millions of people exactly um, there's a there's um, a lot of room for improvement there um i do i do worry though that we are generating a gen we're creating a generation of hypochondriacs from all these devices yeah, yeah but we also have like an obesity crisis in the country and if there it's are true. devices yes. that we can make cool and help people better understand and manage their health like that's way more important to me to it solve is. than you know the hypochondriac problem i think like we still have so well, many yeah but you know, we talked a little bit about you, you know. There's going to be the new Pixel, and there's going to be the new iPhone. But um, did you see? I mean, clearly, we're all going to move to the Nokia phones because these are the <laughs> brand new phones uh, that are that, that are being worked on right now. This is unbelievable, and what? this is going to kill Apple and Google's business. This is the replacement for the Nokia One Six Eight X phones. Okay, this is a Linux-powered numpad phone that you can go out there and maybe buy. Um, and like all Linux phones, doesn't actually make phone calls. <laughs> like what? I saw that in the notes. Doesn't make fucking phone calls. I'm like, how is that? How is it a phone? What? I, I don't think it is. Who Who wants this? Like who wants no. one of those Nokia numpad phones? I don't... I love nostalgia. I, I love people who like have the nostalgia, like YouTube videos and whatever else, and people talking about Commodore 64s and Spectrums. I love all that stuff. But who wants one of those phones? <laughs> they were terrible. I like that it's called Notkia. I didn't catch that yeah, before. Like Notkia that. instead of Nokia. That's clever. I don't yeah. know. But people spend a lot of time doing stuff that I do not understand like this. Like, how do you, how do you have time to do this? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't get know. it. They're is there anything else? Different lives. That's going on? 
I was going to say on that bombshell. <laughs> no. You added something in here, Jeremy, about OSTP issues guidance to make federally funded research freely available without delay, which sounds like a riveting oh. ride of a roller coaster. Actually, I thought that was really cool, but I haven't had time to read the Yeah, so the the White House, that's the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy is the OSTP. Updated the oh, US okay. policy guidelines, basically. So anything that is taxpayer-supported research has to be av- uh, immediately available to the American public at no cost. So I know I had talked about this before. uh, I think that, I mean, it is an abomination that that has not always been the case. It's absolutely horrific. No, Um, a bunch of journals charge for things that are taxpayer funded traditionally. So this gets rid of that, which seems desirable. That's why I almost removed it, because while it's interesting, I'm glad it happened. I don't know that we'll have any dissenting opinions on it. Well, not a dissenting opinion, but I have some additional commentary that's related, which is actually a a friend of mine who I went through YC with years ago is starting a company called Medplum. And it's kind of like github for sharing um like scientific research and in talking to her years ago about like how she was thinking about this company i also didn't know that like universities are funding all this research separate from the government they fund all this research and then to jeremy's point you have to like buy the papers but if you actually email the authors of the paper they're usually happy to give it to you for free like they just want to get their research out there but the way to get it published like you have to publish in a journal that then people charge for is, I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. And I think, you know, one of the positive things that did come out of the pandemic was a lot of the like drug manufacturers and stuff started collaborating a little bit more. Now there's this whole lawsuit that I saw. Uh, I was going to say pandemic, is, not even over yet. And yeah. one of them is already suing the other. So. Yeah, one of them <laughs> is already back to business yeah. as usual. It's great. Yeah, exactly. But you know, one of my at least optimistic hopes was that this was going to facilitate more sharing of this research because I didn't realize until my friend told me about this that like things aren't just readily shared. Like in software, you post all your stuff, not all your stuff, but you post most things on GitHub, like people are collaborating, they're forking it, they're doing new things, right? Like, I think all of us very much live in that open source world. And it's easy to forget that that doesn't apply to other parts of society. And the fact that it's not really a thing in medical research is when we're fighting all these like global awful diseases and stuff is is super sad. So I'm glad yeah, the government's leading the way. I just hope other people follow and hopefully her little startup is successful because it's a problem. Yeah. Obviously. It sounds very cool. So yeah, I vehemently agree, but I still thought that was interesting. Yeah. This is, this is kind of the worst, like Jeremy said, like this is one of the worst, types of news story for our show because we all just agree in it and we're always trying to find <laughs> things that we vehemently disagree with but um yeah i don't know if there's anything else i mean is there anything else that springs to mind for you two i mean we could spend four or five minutes just ranting about act but we, i mean i feel like we've done that for eight ten years at this point so uh yes yeah he, he had, i love looking at the way he writes things into the notes um like Gamer assholes drive Ron Gilbert to not talk about the new Monkey Island game because they're gargantually abusive. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that that is editorialized. I don't know anything about this news story. He's almost certainly right about it, but... uh, You can definitely tell who wrote what in the doc, even even though we do parenthetical (laughs) our name in there. Not really necessary, given the three of our tones. It's it's pretty clear. Yeah. This is all, like, gaming stuff, too. I have no idea. I don't understand anything about video games i still 
don't understand how Twitch is such a big business. I think it's very cool. But again, clearly, yeah. I lead a very like different Twitch. lifestyle. I don't have time to like sit around watching people do shit on the internet. <laughs> like I do not under I I do not understand that. I, I was very mad at Twitch when I when I contributed some money towards uh, a Twitch streamer and they they banned me for fraud. <laughs> it was one yeah, of those that, automated that things. It was like okay. Okay, but I get it. Yeah, and people watch um, all right, well, streaming. I don't get it. Anyway. You what? People watch people like streaming code on Twitch. I just learned this like a few months ago. I, I oh, had yeah. no idea that was the thing. Yeah. Yeah, live coding as well, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Like people love that stuff. I although I've said this before in Bad Voltage, I find watching um John Carmack, the creator of Doom and Quake, watching his keynotes at QuakeCon where he talks about, you know, foveated rendering or whatever. I find it weirdly therapeutic. Um, I think I want to go to a spa where somebody puts cucumbers on my eyelids and, you know, I lay in an enzyme bath and listen to John Carmack, John Carmack <laughs> talking about, you know. You, you are an odd, odd yeah. duck. You, you are an odd, an odd one. But also that's not yeah. streaming live coding. That's a keynote. Like I like watching talks, TED Talks or whatever on interesting things. I just like don't like watching other people work like i need that time to do my own work who are you people how do you have time for this it's, such, it's so it's so weirdly voyeuristic as well like i, I mean i don't know people clearly like it so all right well we are done erica um you were very nice on i was expecting you to be as predictably horrible and mean as you normally are in our marriage um it's all it's all a show Oh, for she's, a, she's a wonderful human being. <laughs> we'll be ma- will have been married 15 years next year, so uh, she's got great taste. Uh, <laughs> patron saint of patience. <laughs> I think Jonna will very the- much agree that that is not true. <laughs> patience is not one of my virtues. <laughs> I think the patron saint of patience may be uh, the you? title of the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but Erica, thanks, lovely guys. to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Um, and, yeah, thanks for joining. Uh, yeah, this was fun. I mean, it only took me like how many years to get an invite? I don't know. Yeah, I I just I just love the fact how Elan is almost certainly quite annoyed that we didn't ask him. <laughs> Hi, Elan. Love you, Elan. Uh, we love you, Elan. We do, well, <laughs> we kind of like you. <laughs> I love you. I don't know about the rest of them. All right. He's a six out of 10. So uh, <laughs> thank you everybody for, for, for listening. Be sure to go to our forum and check out that. Uh, let us know what you think, especially I definitely want to hear about what you think about these watches that are coming out. Let us know what you think about the, uh, the Adam Neumann stuff and we'll see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.